This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu podcast on books, a discussion on with authors and their books. My name is Anuradha Raman and today I am going to be talking to Chinmay Tumbe, a professor at the Indian Institute of Management of Ahmedabad about the two books that have caught everyone's attention. India Moving, A History of Migration and the Age of Pandemics. I hope to discuss in great detail the second book. I'm also or let us say I've become a fan of Tumbe's writing, especially uh, two qualities that stand out: extraordinary scholarship and research and a slight deft handling of grim subjects um, like migration and death. He doesn't throw data at me uh, as a reader without a good story to tell. Good morning, Chinmay. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me over. Uh, how does your world look like today? Uh, it's good. It's bright, sunny, <laughs> uh, not so cold in Ahmedabad, where I'm uh, based currently. Uh, uh, uh-huh. So, yeah. How different... Is it today from what it was when you began writing this book? Uh, <laughs> in a sense, uh, it's been a crazy year for everyone in the world. Uh, for me, as a person who you know decided to take the plunge and write this book in kind of record time, uh, set myself a huge target, uh, and then I desperately wanted the book out in 2020, and finally, you know, it came out in the last month of 2020. So now I'm just uh, chilling. I'm not doing anything. Uh, though I have a hectic teaching semester, but I don't think I'm going to write for a long time now. So, uh, so it's been a crazy year, uh, you know, researching, writing. Uh, but on hindsight, uh, you know, uh, fairly fulfilling as well. So, so last year was like surreal for all of us. We learned a few lessons. It was not too harsh on, on some of us. Uh, how would you kind of uh, recall 2020? Yeah, I mean, of course... <clears throat> lived a you know fairly uh, privileged life i know how bad <clears throat> things were outside the campus <clears throat> i live on a university campus so things are you know fairly fine on the campus but <clears throat> since i work also on migration you know <clears throat> the plight of migrant workers in in the initial months uh, and then l- later on of course during the year as well kind of tells you that the average indian is so you know uh, worse off but for me luckily you know because i was uh, living on the campus not much uh, change per se in my personal life though i must say that the book is dedicated to a dear friend who passed away last year uh, mm. because of the pandemic uh, and this is the librarian of ima dr anil kumar uh, and so that was a sort of a you know a personal tragedy uh, and uh, the book is you know that's why dedicated in his name mm. so uh, the book that we are going to be talking about is the age of the pandemics and the book that he that Chinmay wrote before was called India Moving, the History of Migrations. Now, in the age of uh, pandemics, you begin with a, a classic, let me tell you a story. When your son kind of approaches you and draws your attention to uh, uh, an episode in a, in a Tintin comic book. So 
uh, when he mentions influenza and you say you were surprised that at the age of eight he was familiar with influenza. So is that what uh, led you to telling the story to uh, 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 to your son and to all of us? Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, and the book, in fact, does start with this, you know, brief paragraph, uh, like a conversation with my son. Uh, it, it happened in March last year when I remember very distinctly March 11th when the WHO announced it as a pandemic and suddenly, you know, the lockdown started. And by March and we were, you know, all having conversations at home. And my son is a big Tintin fan. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, tell me, have there been pandemics in the past? And I said, you know, there was this influenza. And I had done some, you know, very preliminary work on influenza many years back. Uh, of the 1918 pandemic. And then, you know, he, I thought he wouldn't know what is influenza. And then he runs and gets me this book. That's what triggered this idea that, you know, there are these kind of, <clears throat> if you look hard enough, they kind of, you know, the remnants of many of those pandemics are there even in popular culture. Uh, but yet, what it also kind of triggered this thought process that we don't seem to know enough about this from the Indian context. Uh, and so there's really no book on the influenza pandemic of 1918. Despite it being, you know, India's greatest demographic shock ever, 20 million people died in the matter of a few months. Uh, and, you know, it's really been completely wiped clean from our collective memory. Uh, and then when I started, you know, reading more and so on, uh, it was very clear that even plague and cholera uh, were such important pandemics which tore through Indian subcontinent. And that sort of gave me a framing point for the book because we had three major pandemics which affected all parts of the world, cholera, plague and influenza. And India was the most affected in all of them. And yet, you know, we, we, when, when this uh, COVID uh, pandemic broke out in March, a lot of the stuff that was happening on social media was in the sense of, you know, oh, India has never been the source of pandemics. Oh, India has never had pandemics in the past. It was almost as if these cholera plague and influenza pandemics uh, had been forgotten. And it's not really been taught in our schools and so on. And so that really, you know, gave the thought process. So, yes, I would say it started from this, you know, conversation and then uh, eventually led to a book project. Uh, what I really uh, loved about this book is, is, uh, is a very light touch with which you deal with such heavy subjects. Was that kind of um, uh, a very cautious effort? I, I see that, you know, I'm not weighed down by these pandemics, but there is an engagement uh, nevertheless. So was that a very conscious effort made to, um, how do I say, uh, demystify a lot of things and make it uh, more accessible? Absolutely. I think this comes from me being in the teaching profession. Uh, mm. What we do is, of course, read a lot of dense material, work with a lot of dense material. I'm actually a trained economist. I work with a lot of large numbers. One of the things that goes into this book project is creating this a very morbid sort of you know, mortality statistical database of India in the 19th and early 20th century. And so, you know, I love to run these numbers. I love to do the statistics. But at the end of the day, you know, the idea in this book project was to tell ourselves this story of what happened between 1817 and 1920 and why some of those things are still relevant today. Uh, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. It's a very conscious decision to break, break down some of these big events into, you know, uh, into more accessible sort of uh, uh, material. Uh, and uh, it's been, you know, it's been very nice. My earlier book project, I should say, uh, the teaching really helped in writing of the book. Out here, it's the converse. Uh, after the book came out, I actually now teach a course at I am Ahmedabad called Pandemics. <laughs> and oh. uh, it's in a way the book which is now influencing the teaching of that course. So that's the slight difference between the two. So when you open it to a uh, discussion with your students, uh, are there things that, are, that you feel uh, should have been a part of the book 
uh, in the sense, have the engagements with students enriched the book? And in hindsight, do you think you could have included a lot of things? Absolutely. I think this is true for any book project. I mean, the migration stuff, you know, took 10 years of research. And the minute I wrote it, of course, people started writing in, oh, did you know about this? Did you know about that? I think one reviewer pointed out, oh, I had missed this one important migration of, you know, person from, I think, UP to England in the early 19th century. So, yes, on balance, you know, there's so many other things that one could incorporate in any book. But my philosophy is, you know, once you write the book, you shouldn't regret of if only I had known this. You should take it as new knowledge and new learning and then kind of see that, you know, in the next thing that you write, you know, you try and incorporate that new information. So, in a way, I don't see it as a regret. But uh, I, I see it as a, a, a very happy thing that I'm learning more about the subject. And in a way that the book itself has led to more uh, you know, questions uh, and conversations. Wow. You know, I found it interesting that you mentioned Smriti Chitre's uh, you know, book in, 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 your, in the age of pandemics. And I suddenly remember reading it two years ago and completely glossing over this description uh, when she talks about how people were dying one by one in her village. So this conversation brought that back to me and I think I'm going back to Smriti Chitre again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Smriti Chitre is one of the you know greatest books actually ever written on pandemics in terms of giving a first-person uh, account. And the funny part is, you know, I, I bought this book two years back. I actually did not read the book. I bought the book only because I was at a lit festival and I wanted the autograph of Shanta Gokhale, the writer who translated mm-hmm. the book, uh, which right. is a Marathi memoir uh, written in the 1930s of a remarkable woman, Lakshmi Bhai Tilak. And uh, it, this book was literally sitting on my shelf. And while I was doing, you know, research for this book, remember it was a lockdown. So my sort of research was limited to digital archives, to access provided by a wonderful library. And of course, then my you know own book collection. And I was just literally going through personal memoirs and saying, who lived through this time, late 19th century, early 20th century? And there, you know, was Smriti Chitra. And so I read through Smriti Chitra. And of course, there was an account on plague, where it is called plague. But influenza 1918, which is the worst, you know, pandemic ever, uh, was not really called influenza, and it was in uh, uh, Lakshmi Matilak's words, Man Modi, which was how yes. it was referred to in Western India. Uh, and so I wrote this to Shanta Gokhale recently, saying, "You know what? You know, you've done a great service by translating this book, and Man Modi is nothing but influenza." And she was delighted to know that because for a long time she wanted to know what was Man Modi, uh, but in the book, you know, you don't realize that this is uh, the great influenza pandemic of 19. Oh. So I was happy to kind of fill in the blanks on that. <laughs> So, so, so I'm going to take you a little back. Right at the beginning of your book, you mentioned how this book addresses the loss of memory about past pandemics. Um, so while you were writing in the midst of a pandemic, what exactly did you mean? That they were, not, they were not well chronicled or that people had not read them or that uh, they were, there was a dearth of written material about these um, uh, three pandemics that you mentioned? When yeah, you I think obviously the cholera one and the plague one, of course, it is it is a fact that a lot of documentation does exist. In fact, even the British officials had reports and so on. Uh, on on them, I would say it's just that we seem to have forgotten many aspects. of it. I think out of the three, we have some idea of plague because, you know, it led to the arrest of Tilak. So in our freedom movement stories, you know, that's one anchor that is there. But how many people know that the 1857 uprising you know, happened on the back of a massive cholera epidemic, which broke out throughout India. Uh, and most importantly, the biggest of them all, which was, you know, the influence of 1918, on which the British had one preliminary report. To this day, Arunatha, I have not found a single photograph of the 1918 pandemic in which 20 million Indians died. This is one of the biggest, you know, uh, mysteries. And one of my tasks in this and the coming years is to find wow. material 
of this pandemic. Uh, so clearly, on 1918, there's virtually nothing written. You know, less than 10 research papers, um, and on plague and cholera, a little more. But again, you know, let, let me put it this way: when the COVID pandemic happened, as I said, it seemed like you know this is the first time uh, this has uh, uh, hit India. And of course, there were so many parallels. Uh, I had, of course, read about certain aspects of pandemics when I was doing my research on migration history. And when the migration crisis broke out, I said, hang on, you know, people have been going through these similar policy dilemmas. Should we lock down or not? Should we quarantine or not? What do we do with migrant workers? All of this has happened before. Uh, and so when people said this was an unprecedented crisis, there was no way we could know that so many migrant workers would have to go back. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, all this has happened before. And so part of the, I have a section at the end called COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. Uh, and that's what I mean by, you know, this loss of memory. I think the classic example is the migration crisis. We would not, I mean, India is probably the only country which had such a massive migration crisis. Uh, and I think that's because partly that, you know, we didn't really think through uh, how a strict and stringent lockdown without anything for migrant workers uh, would sort of uh, pan out. Uh, and so that's definitely one of the big learnings from past pandemics is that any planning. So if you decide to lock down and for whatever reason say that migrants should not go back home, then you better ramp up all your relief measures to ensure that migrants have food. You know, I was just listening to uh, all the accounts on hunger. I mean, people went hungry for weeks, if not months. And, you know, that forced a lot of people to start walking back home. Yeah. So clearly, you know, that part was a big, you know, big disaster. I mean, I think you have to acknowledge it as that. Of course, on balance, you know, we've not had as many deaths per capita than all those terrible pandemics of the past. But then so has, you know, most countries of the world, actually. So this is now, if you look on, on kind of the last one year's experience, this is a pandemic which has had a much larger economic shock than a demographic shock in comparison to past pandemics. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there are many good things that the government did. At least the government of India did not diss the science behind the pandemic, unlike, say, Brazil, unlike US. Uh, but I think also some learnings you know, not many countries saw a migration crisis. We did. That's one of the sort of negative aspects of our handling of the crisis. You know, when we witness this extraordinary migration of uh, urban labor, it is a point that you have uh, addressed that it was it is perhaps a good idea to let them go back to the villages to decongest the cities. Uh, that it's a point that you make actually. So in a sense, um, you do say that they're moving back to the villages uh, is was perhaps not a bad idea. Is that what you were trying to say? Absolutely. I wrote an op-ed piece on 26th March. This is two days after the lockdown saying pretty much the same thing. That is, let the migrants go back home. And that's exactly what happened two months later. They were forced. Remember, they were forced to start the Shramik trains because it reached breaking point. They didn't start the Shramik trains because they had planned it out as such. It was, you know, on the massive protests that were happening in Surat, Delhi, Mumbai. It reached breaking point and they said, okay, let's go. And that's what I pointed on March 26th, that, you know, let them go now, precisely where infection rates are very low. The concern, of course, was that the virus would spread. But that concern was there in May as well, right? And so, you know, uh, it would have been, I think, better if, you know, uh, we let the migrants go uh, first up. In fact, now, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty about the disease in March. Uh, now, of course, on hindsight, we do know that this disease is disproportionately an urban disease, which means the density of urban areas was clearly an important factor. That's the one stylized fact we know about the pandemic for sure, COVID pandemic. And that is why decongestion and de-densification uh, would have actually been a good strategy. A lot of people say, you know, the slums, uh, the intensity started waning and, uh, and so on. Well, part of the reason is because a lot of people went back uh, and that's when it really started. 
uh, waning, the intensity. So there were, I think there's a strong case to be made that in any future pandemic, if it is not really, you know, in Mar mid-March, it was a very, uh, the intensity was very low, you know, give a one week window. This is what the UK government did for international students. They said, we're giving you one week, please go home. And, you know, this is pretty much what I think the Indian government should do in, in future pandemics. Hmm. You know, Chinmay, um, as, as somebody who occasionally reports, I found it extraordinarily difficult not to go out in the field uh, to report on the pandemic, even as it engulfed us. How did you take the reader to the places you mention in the age of pandemics? There's a particular um, a scene of a symmetry uh, in, in, you know, in Kolkata. How did you manage to do that sitting in the confines of your house? Yeah, that's a that's a very important question. Uh, <laughs> I, I got lucky on two counts. One is I'm I'm living on this amazing university campus, which probably has one of the best libraries of India. Uh, and as I told you, the book is dedicated to a librarian. Uh, yes. And this librarian, Dr. Anil Kumar, has set up such an incredible library service where you can get literally every any written resource anywhere in the world. You know, they have these interlibrary ties. And so yes. it was this wonderful team who I would just email saying, you know, can you get me this manuscript, which is in some XYZ library in, you know, South America. And they would get me. And of course, they would tell me, you know, everything is locked down. So we'll, you know. They would give me a timeline. So, so I got some documents one month after my request, some two months after my request, and some like, you know, within days. But over a sort of eight or 10 month period, uh, cumulatively, I, you know, could amass a lot of the stuff which was kept around the world. It also helped. It also helped. Uh, there were important digital archives like the Welcome Institute archive and so on, uh, which had actually digitized a lot of these old reports and kept it online for free. And so in a way, the transaction costs of doing research were reduced. Now, could the book have been, you know, much better researched if I had access to our physical archives, uh, uh, you know, going around India and so on? Absolutely, yes. But that was a trade-off I made very early on, saying I'm not going to be... My first book took 10 years of research, and this book has taken about 10 months of research. So, obviously, I, given a choice, I would have liked to do many years of research. But then the whole point of writing the book was to get it out in the year of the pandemic. Uh, and that is why I said, okay, obviously, I won't get everything into it but it's important to write this book. Now, the places that you visit, you almost succeed the reader, uh, someone like me, you take her to the place about which you are talking. And that is something that I was very interested in knowing. How did you recreate uh, the space and time for me? When yeah. You yeah, so I think, of course, a lot of places which I have not visited, it's obviously tough. Uh, to do that. And I try not to visualize places that I've not personally you know, been to. I don't want to get things wrong. After all, this is a book of, you know, nonfiction and so on. Uh, but the Calcutta thing, you know, it was just remarkable. Uh, I, I was in Calcutta, I think, 20 years ago. But as it turned out, I did visit Calcutta uh, last year. And I was there literally two days before the lockdown. And I often think, you know, if I was there during the lockdown, then obviously this book would not have happened. But it so happened that I had gone there on some work and uh, uh, a fr uh, you know, I went along with a friend to this uh, South Park Street Cemetery. And uh, this uh, cemetery is one of the, you know, the finest cemeteries in India. Very beautiful as well as cemeteries go. And uh, at the counter, there was this book of burial records. And uh, the economist in me sort of woke up and said, you know, let me buy this book because it's such amazing demographic data of how many people died every year uh, and so on. And so I came back. And this is even before the book project, I digitized this thing, you know, put together a spreadsheet. And that's what really told me about, you know, the time series of deaths in Calcutta, 
uh, and it kind of shows how important cholera was. So now while writing the book, of course, uh, I know that a lot of people know about South Park Cemetery. Uh, and so I was just kind of describing my own, you know, visit out there. I mean, when you enter that cemetery, you'll see, you know, all couples, you know, <laughs> this is a, a thing about cemeteries, it, these uh, kind of lonely places and I think perfect for couples visiting. So in a way I got lucky because I had seen it uh, up close, uh, but there's some places which I've tried to describe may not have done a you know, good job simply because I've not really... So, uh, uh, moving slightly ahead, you have talked and mentioned in detail about the role of pilgrimages in, in, in spreading something like cholera. And now the point came home when, you know, more recently, the Indian government, including Indian media, blamed the Tablighi Jamaats for being some kind of super spreaders uh, of COVID. Uh, how important has this being, uh, you know, as a, as a political tool, as well as a reason uh, for the spread of pandemics. I recall somewhere, in fact, you mentioned, you quote William Hunter uh, uh, as saying that pilgrimages were homicidal enterprises. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think well, the pattern that you see across pandemics is that people want to find a villain, right, uh, and uh, find out... Uh, uh, I mean, think of today's uh, pandemic, the villain in some sense is Wuhan and the wet markets of Wuhan. And, you know, uh, uh, that is considered to be you know, the source of the pandemic. And so people are like, you know, get your act up in order. Uh, now, during the 19th century world, uh, a huge part of this blame game was placed on pilgrims. Now, it's not, it, it, it is, of course, a fact that pilgrims did transmit cholera through particular practices, but they were not the only guys doing it. Right? And what's important to understand is the selective blame game. And the pilgrims were not doing this deliberately. That's the other part. And there were many ways in which the authorities could have actually just sensitized, you know, in terms of basic practices. Because these pilgrims have been going on for millennia, right? Whether it's the, the Mecca one or the Haridwar one. Uh, so it's not the case that, you know, the, these pilgrims have always spread diseases. It just so happens that cholera is a waterborne disease. It's very amenable to, you know, pilgrim pack, uh, transmission through pilgrims. And the cholera strain after 1817 is particularly deadly. So there was cholera before, but it never really, you know, hurt pilgrimages that much as it started doing after 1817. So in that context, I would say what's, what's disturbing back then and now is, of course, the selective sort of blame game. And that's, of course, very convenient based on, you know, which ideology is ruling at the center, whether it was the British back then or the sort of current uh, dispensation. So... The key, of course, is to quickly sensitize people saying that, A, the viruses or bacteria don't really care about religion or, you know, these kind of boundaries. They're going to get transmitted through particular means. And one has to understand the way in which this is transmitted. B, unless there's some sort of a deliberate act of, you know, bio-warfare, and there's no evidence of that back then or now, uh, it's pointless to kind of blame an entire social group uh, for transmission. Of course, if people are sort of behaving... Uh, inappropriately, you know, one has to take action uh, about that. So that's a completely different matter. But to make scapegoating in general, whether in the Black Death of the 14th century, where Jews were targeted in Europe, whether it was pilgrims in, you know, uh, 19th century world in India, or the Tablighi Jamaat in the COVID pandemic, it's a very unfortunate part of the pandemic. And it plays on to our own anxieties and fears that pan pandemics tend to hide. So in that sense, uh, you know, uh, speaking uh, uh, more recently, does it become a convenient diversionary tool for the government of the day? 
now uh, about the role of religion in the past of course you you mentioned but in the more recent let's say blaming tablighi jamaat um, is that also a convenient tool just to divert attention or buy time i think so i absolutely think so uh, but i do think uh, if you saw exactly what happened the political response at various levels was relatively fairly mature the response unfortunately was you know i would say the political response was relatively more mature than the response of the media i think it's really the sections of the media which amplified this to no end right i think politicians very quickly came i remember the maharashtra chief minister very quickly coming and saying look this is the viruses don't you know respect uh, religious boundaries and so on this is just uh, uh, please take care of yourself uh, and i think by the central government also very quickly came in and said similar things so in that sense it was short lived but it was it created a particular psyche right and even two months down the line people were saying stuff like you know oh if only those guys had not moved around uh, this pandemic would not have gone out of hand so again it became it becomes this classic sort of uh, you know uh, scapegoating Uh, which was completely unnecessary at that time. I mean, just think about many other things which happened. For example, the Madhya Pradesh government uh, fell, or the transfer took place. You know, that's right. Something like March 18th, if I'm not mistaken. And this is after many states had started lockdown and so on. And I would argue that you know the government kind of uh, dragged its feet on many important pandemic commitments just to get that transfer of government done. Right? But no, uh, the same week as Tablighi Jamaat. you know you had ministers going and giving rally speeches in madhya pradesh uh, and so on uh, or che- cheering the transfer of government out there uh, which you know which nobody really latched on to as a potential super spreading event <laughs> so so have 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 we learned some lessons uh, from our past experiences and the more recent one and my second question would be how has this really changed you how has 2020 changed the way you think the way you live um two questions sure so the first part is you know uh i think the biggest learning for the whole world from past pandemics is that you have to act early and i think what one of the things people are not appreciating enough is that you know the mortality per capita for most countries in the world is really very low compared to some of the deadly pandemics of the past right and so in a way that is actually a success story precisely because countries have acted early and they've acted in a you know way which uh, sci- scientifically speaking seems to be fairly plausible like valid uh, of course it's also lead- led to a massive recession and i think that is what you know the future has to kind of in the next 5 or 10 years people have to make smarter strategies of how do you lock down without really disturbing livelihoods to the extent that it did this year because the epidemiolog- epidemiologists you know recommendation is very simple just lock down right but if you in india as we saw when you lock down you get more poverty you get you know more hunger you get a lot of these other knock on effects uh, and so obviously ideally you want to have good pandemic prevention policies that have minimal touch on livelihood and that is what the thinking has to from that is the learning from this pandemic and previous pandemics but the, the learning from previous pandemics is that you have to act early which didn't happen in 1918 and that's why we got 20 million deaths in a matter of few months Uh, there was learning of course in the world of science the Im- amount of global co- co- you know cooperation that went the fact that we have a vaccine within a year is quite a remarkable thing uh, the fact that who exists today was able to announce it as a pandemic fairly early on so there's of course a lot of th- I and mean, the who itself as an organization traces its history to 1851 if you look at its intellectual origins and it started to prevent cholera pandemics and innovates you know trying to do its best 
uh, to uh, stop pandemics. Uh, so the, of course, there is learnings uh, from the past. And of course, the unlearnings is that, you know, the whole issue of scapegoating, trying to find the Americans call it the Chinese virus. And, you know, we've seen this in the past, kind of uh, blaming an entire disease on a particular region and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's how, you know, I would see that. Uh, the second question is, you know, how it's uh, uh, changed me. Of course, I think uh, writing the book itself, I mean, remember, I mean, it's a book essentially on mortality, right? Uh, it's a book on so many deaths. And so it was not a very pleasant task. Uh, and so I had to write the book. While I was writing the book, you know, I'm just talking, for example, in November 1918, you know, there were 200,000 Indians dying every single day. Um, today's COVID strike rate over one year is about 150,000 deaths. We're talking 200,000 Indians dying every single day in November 1918. And when I was reading and writing that, obviously, the sort of enormity of that particular situation really dawned on me. Uh, and so it was quite tough to write some of these uh, sections. But while reading, I also realized that and writing that irrespective of how bad situations are, uh, there is always this undercurrent of resilience and people are always fighting back. There were these tons of welfare associations that prompted up you know, in 1918. And to deal with the migrant crisis, so many you know, relief operations started across the country. In a way, civil society kind of stepped up. And so that kind of tells you that, you know, uh, in times of crisis, one should basically uh, pitch in and do uh, as much as one can. Uh, so at the personal level, uh, sort of more reflective mood of, you know, uh, 2020. Uh, and yeah. of course, now that I've written this book uh, on a relatively long writing break now. So from migration to death due to pandemics, where are you going to take us now? Uh, it's a top secret, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just say I, I have been working on a book project, uh, which is completely tossed to one side of my office yeah, to make room for this pandemic book. Uh, so I'll resume that. But as I said, I'm not going to think of writing for a long time. So there's <laughs> an underlying thread. Uh, you know, there was a connecting thread from migration to... Yeah, I, th- I mean, there is, of course, a, a, a close thread. But as I said, you know, let uh, I, I have this thing about, you know, I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about <laughs> it until I have that first draft ready. Yeah. Well, good luck then. We look forward to it. Thank you, Chinmay. Thank you for sparing some time to talk to us. Um, this is Anuradha Raman signing off. Hope Thank you, you so enjoyed. much. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 